you, Jesus. Thank you. All right. You guys can have a seat. That'd be great. I want to welcome you officially, my welcome, to our service today for Easter. I'm Ron Thompson. I get to be one of the pastors here. And so I'm just so excited that you would spend Easter with us. And I just really appreciate our team and leading us and all the work they've done to be able to prepare. Just awesome. This is our third time now. We have another one to go. I just really love this um, every single time. So I'm going to begin this morning with a traditional Easter greeting. And if you've been at church at any time in your life, you may have you know, been in a situation where the leader would say, he has risen, and the congregation responds with, he has risen indeed. So I'm the leader, you're the congregation, okay? So we've got that. So let's do that, okay? He has risen. All right. I mean, that was pretty good. That's better than the other services, but I think it's mass that's helping you out a little bit. So let's just do it again. Okay. A little bit stronger. He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right. That's what we just sing about. The resurrected king is resurrecting me, every one of us, every single one of us. Today, over 2 billion people, they're going to gather in groups like ours, some big, some small, all over the planet. In buildings, on beaches, in huts, to celebrate the greatest event in history. A dead man came back to life. The greatest event in history. And that's what Easter is all about. And therefore, if Easter is all about a dead man coming back to life, I would think it would be in our best interest to look into what this dead man who came back to life offers, especially when we talk about hope. Because see, when he came out of that borrowed tomb, he unleashed hope. He unleashed it. A hope in something that never fails, a hope that's beyond our circumstances, whether good or bad. I want to read a quote to you about hope. It's from Lee Strobel. Uh, Lee wrote the book called The Case for Christ. He was uh, a journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and he was a skeptic, and so he decided he would figure out a way to disprove Christianity as being true, and he went on this incredible search. And what happened is, is that after he kept searching and searching, he finally said, it is true, and he gave his life to Jesus. And uh, if you want to read that book, we have several copies in our bookstore, but also there's a movie out right now based on the book. Uh, it's not playing locally, but I believe it's playing down the hill, and you could go watch that just to get a, a taste of what his journey was like. But this is what he says about hope. Hope is the sense of expectancy and optimism that God wants to instill in all of us who have faith in him. It's an overriding confidence he gives, reminding us that even in the midst of our greatest problems, he is still with us. And he is greater than any challenge we face. Do you believe that? He's greater than any challenge we face. No matter how life looks, no matter how dark life may seem to you, hope in the resurrected Jesus will never disappoint. Never. So I'm going to invite you, if you would, to go ahead and grab your message notes out of your program. They look like this. And you're going to be able to follow along. All the Bible verses that we'll use will be here. Uh, as well, and then you might just take some notes today, fill in some blanks as we go through this, help you to stay engaged. That'd be awesome. Also, open your Bible to John 20, and we'll be actually in two chapters of John, John 20 and 21, 
And I just want to say that if you don't own a Bible, one of our visions is, is that everyone in Nevada County would have a Bible in their home. And so if you don't have one in your home, just love to give you one today. So if you'll stop at the bookshelves right out those doors, there's a bunch of Bibles. And we'd just like to give you one. Uh, it'd be our gift that you could take with you today. So what I want to do is I'm going to begin at the top of your notes. We're going to read this verse from 1 Peter one twenty-one, And I'm going to ask you to help me out and let's read it out loud together. Okay, ready, go. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God, and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. We hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead. He raised Jesus from the dead. Because he raised Jesus from the dead, we have hope in every circumstance and situation. What I want to do today is we're just going to look briefly at some accounts uh, that people had when they had, they had encounters with Jesus, and these encounters with Jesus made a difference in their lives as they were struggling to hold on to hope. And what I'm going to say is up front is that we're going to see is that all of these encounters are the same. All of the uh, struggles are the same struggles we have today, and each of us needs an encounter with Jesus. But these weren't just random encounters, okay? These were encounters initiated by the risen Jesus with the purpose of bringing hope to those he loved. I want you to notice as we go through this today that every encounter, Jesus was the pursuer. Jesus was the initiator. And what I'm going to sure we're all going to see is that as we go through this, is we're going to realize that Jesus initiated these counters, that he's also wanting to initiate encounters with us. He also pursues us. He wants you to know that he's pursuing you today. He's pursuing you. He comes showing the deepest of empathy and concern. He wants to show himself in the accounts that we're going to look at that were recorded by John. So we're going to look at four. The first is Mary Magdalene. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about the person, and then we're going to fill in some blanks, and then read the Bible, and then comment on that. And that's the way we'll go through these four different characters. The first is Mary of Magdala. She's called Mary Magdalene. She's one of Jesus' most committed and loyal of followers. She's the very first person that Jesus revealed himself to. Very first one. And what we know about Mary is that at a certain point in time, she was possessed by seven demons. This is what she was known for, okay? And I don't know if what you think about demon possession, but seven demons, she's a messed up woman, okay? She really is. And when Jesus met her, she was an outcast. She was one of the untouchables. She was lonely. And she lived a life separated from love and human relationship and companionship. And when Jesus healed her, when he came upon her, he gave her life. He was her hope. And from that moment on, this desperate woman, she decided that there was no way that she was ever going to let Jesus out of her sight. She had been at the cross when Jesus was crucified. She listened as Jesus cried out his final words, It is finished! And then she heard as Jesus breathed his last breath. She watched as the shoulders shoved a sword in the side of Jesus. She had been there at that moment when they took him down from the cross and they took him to the place of burial. That must have really broken her deeply. Utterly shaken. And shattered. She, because of her love, she decided that it was important 
that Jesus' body be prepared in the proper way for burial. And so she and some other women, they got up early on Sunday, three days after his crucifixion, and they went to the tomb where Jesus had been buried. When the women arrived at the tomb, they were surprised that there was an angel there. The stone had been rolled away, and the angel told them that Jesus had been raised from the dead, and they hurriedly left, and they ran to tell the disciples. They told Peter and John, and Peter and John raced back to the tomb. They were so excited to find out what had actually happened. They discovered it empty, and then they left, but Mary stayed. She was overwhelmed with her sadness and with her shock. And in her story, we're going to see that Jesus pursues and appears to those who feel despair and grief. That's your feeling, despair and grief. He appears to those. So I'm going to begin with verse 11 in chapter 20. Pick it up right there. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of Je- at the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave, and she saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Now, the word for crying that's been used all throughout is not just, you know, like tears coming down. And you, you see tears sometime, and you think that means someone's crying. It wasn't that at all. She was wailing deep from her gut. I don't know if you've ever been in that place. I have. Deep, guttural, wailing. Maybe even to the top of her lungs, crying out in her misery, in her despair. Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? Well, she was confused, and she thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him at that moment, obviously recognizing, she cried out, Rabbi, which is Hebrew for teacher. And it says, he says, don't cling to me. Now, we're not sure exactly what that means, but when I said earlier that Mary made a decision she would never let Jesus leave her sight, I think that also means her grasp. And so she latched on at that moment, latched on to Jesus. For I haven't yet ascended to my father, but go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord then she gave them his message. I, I don't know. We, we read sometimes the Bible and we read words. But what I'm reading here is tenderness. I just love the tenderness in this account. Jesus revealed himself to her in her moment of deepest despair and grief. And he reveals himself with just one word. Mary. Mary. He called her by name the name that she had heard him use again and again since she had been healed of the seven demons. He comforted her with one word, Mary. At that moment, she recognized him, and I just believe at that moment her heart leaped with joy, just joy. 
Jesus reminded her that he knew her by name. It was personal. Folks, I just say that's true for us as well. When we're in our times of despair and grief, we need to remember that he knows our name. He knows your despair. He knows the grief that you're in. He's well acquainted with your sorrow. He is full of compassion. He wants to take the despair that you feel and the grief that you know and turn your sorrow into joy is what the Bible says. He pursues you. He comes after you to offer healing for the hole in your heart that is there because of your sadness and loss. Jesus appeared to her, and he called her by name. And what I believe that shows is his tremendous care. And I just want to encourage you to listen for Jesus calling your name. Ron. Wow. Just listen to that when Jesus calls my name. It gives me such comfort. Second one we want to look at are the disciples. Now, these are men who had spent three years with Jesus, and he had been training them, kind of like the disciple school of training, and uh, they were being groomed for ministry by him, for a calling, for a mission. But at the moment of his greatest need, when he needed them to respond, they abandoned him. And we're going to find them in an upper room, locked behind doors, hiding from authorities, afraid for their own life. In their story, we're going to see that Jesus pursues and appears to those who are facing disappointment and fear. Disappointment and fear. These are the guys who a week earlier had been with Jesus. Jesus is on a donkey. And a week earlier, Jesus was coming down from the Mount of Olives. And he's coming down from the Mount of Olives. The crowds gathered around with palm branches. We celebrated Palm Sunday last week. And they were waving their palm branches. And they were crying out, Hail, Hosanna, King of the Jews. Now, these guys are following along behind Jesus, and they had to be thinking at that moment, oh my gosh, this is awesome. Jesus, they're going to make him king. We're next to Jesus. We're in. We've got it made. It was like they had hit the lottery. That's how they had been feeling just a week before. And then everything changed. Everything went crazy for them. And they were disappointed disillusioned, and living with fear. But what happened? Well, in their minds, Jesus was dead, dead. And therefore, he had been the front. And now they were afraid that the officials would come for them and take their lives as well. And Jesus pursues and appears to them. This is what it says, verse 19. That Sunday, we're in the same day that he had seen Mary... That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Once again, you just read black and white text here. This is like an understatement. All of a sudden, Jesus is standing there among them. And then he, you know, they're like, what? And then he goes, peace. <laughs> peace be with them. He showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. Then... They were filled with joy. Understatement again. 
filled with great joy when they saw the Lord. And again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You see, folks, when Jesus was crucified, none of his followers understood it. Now, you think they would. You think they would have put two and two together because Jesus for three years had been saying, I will be killed for the sins of man. And he'd made it clear that I will be raised again from the dead. But they didn't get it. No matter how many times they had heard it, they didn't yet believe it. Because here's the deal, folks. Dead men don't come back to life. Dead men don't come back to life. So after the crucifixion, they're disappointed. Beyond all means, because they had banked everything on Jesus. And they were afraid. They were devastated. They were demoralized. And they were hiding out in fear behind locked doors for fear of what would happen to them. Suddenly, Jesus passes through the door. I, I guess that's how he did it. Passes through the door. He just appears out of nowhere. And right in the middle of the room. And he says to them, peace be with you. He pursues and appears. He assured them at that moment, this has all been part of God's plan. This was all part of what God had intended. This is all that was part of what I told you about. But in the, minute, in the moment of this tremendous stress and pressure, they forgot what Jesus had told them. They allowed their circumstances to overwhelm them with great disappointment and fear. You ever been in a place like that? Those circumstances are so huge that, are, that you're under, that you're in at the moment, and the only thing, you, or you're disappointed in the way things are working out, or you have fear that nothing's going to change. You've had circumstances so strong that it shook your faith to the core, your belief. Well, that's exactly what was happening to the disciples at this moment. And Jesus reassures them that no matter how bleak it may look, or difficult things may be, we can still trust God's plans. Still trust his plans. Jesus comes to let them know, I have been risen from the dead just as I promised. It was God's plan. And even though things may look overwhelming, you can trust God that he's in control. And folks, that's the same thing he wants to do with us. Jesus wants to take our circumstances and he wants us to see that with him, that he can give us confidence and security, even though we're not sure how things are going to work out. He can relieve our fears. He can help us to live in a place of shalom, where we're not worried about the future. That's what he did with the disciples. Well, the next is Thomas. We're just going to dig down into one of the disciples now. And we know him as Doubting Thomas, right? You guys have heard of Doubting Thomas? Maybe you used that phrase before. Well, Thomas was one of the disciples too, but he was missing from the upper room the night that Jesus came. Now, what happened with Thomas, and I'm just using a little uh, projection here, is that what happens with Thomas is that he has fear, he has disappointment, he has grief, he has despair. But unlike the disciples who looked at one another for strength, Thomas was going to do it alone. You know, I see people do that a lot, a, lot, a lot of the times. They get in a circumstance or situation, and, and, and they, 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 instead of clinging to those that they've been with for support, they try to do it on their own. They go their own way. 
separate themselves. He was missing from that experience that they had when Jesus came. Now, in the story of Thomas, what we're going to see is that Jesus pursues and appears to those who have doubt and skepticism. Those who have doubt and skepticism. So I want to begin reading with verse 24. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it. Kind of, you know, actually, people say that Thomas was, if you look through his history, kind of like an Eeyore. I won't believe it. I won't believe it unless I actually see the nail wounds in his hands. You know, unless I can actually put my fingers right into that hand. Unless I can put my hand right into the wound in his side. Well, eight days later, the disciples were together again. This time, Thomas said, I'm not going to miss out. I'm going to be with them. The doors were locked again. Suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them, understatement, just there, just right among them. He has to calm them. Peace be with you. But he came that night pursuing Thomas. And he said to Thomas, put your fingers here. Look at my hands. Put your hand in my side. And then he said, don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Now, how does Jesus approach Thomas, someone who has doubt and skepticism? Here's what Jesus did. He called Thomas to make a choice, to not get stuck in his doubt and skepticism. I want to go back and just read that phrase that he said to Thomas, 27b. He says, don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Now, Jesus said this in the strongest words that could have been used in the language he was speaking. It's a double negative. Don't be faithless any longer believe. It's a strong command. He says, stop not believing, believe. Stop not believing, believe. Well, Thomas made a choice. Thomas did believe, and therefore, maybe instead of calling him Doubting Thomas, we should call him Overcoming Doubt Thomas because he overcame his doubts. He made a choice and believed. And what happened then is he ended up falling to his knees. He changed completely and he worshiped him. He said, my Lord, my personal Lord, my God, creator of everything. He knew that Jesus was concerned for him personally. He came that night just to show himself to Thomas because Jesus wanted to be in relationship with him. He knew that Jesus was God and therefore able to do all things. Now, folks, just reflecting on Thomas a minute, it's okay to have doubts. It really is. It's okay to be skeptical. It hurts you, though, when you stay there. So here's what I do with my doubts. I have my doubts. I'm incredibly skeptical at times. So what I've learned to do with doubts and skepticism is something like this. So you're on a journey in a car, and you're driving along, and all of a sudden, doubts and skeptical thoughts come into your mind. You can drive on with those missing the journey 
consumed by your doubts and skepticism. But what I encourage, what I do, and encourage other people to do as well, is to try this out. Stop your car, put it in the park, turn off the key, take the key out, get around, go to the back of the car. I don't have a fancy car with a trunk release, so I need a key. Unlock the trunk, open the trunk, and put my doubts and skeptical thoughts there. They're still with me. I, I haven't you know, said, I, I can't think these thoughts, but I'm not going to let them consume me. Shut the trunk lid, get back in the car, turn on the key, put it in drive, pedal to the metal, and go for it. <laughs> Folks, I just encourage you to do that. You can have doubts and you can have skepticism. But Jesus says, believe. Believe. Finally, let's consider Simon Peter. He's the most famous of Jesus' 12 followers. Peter was the one who couldn't restrain his emotions, right? He, he was boisterous, adventurous, daring, eager, passionate, heart-filled. He was that kind of disciple. He was the one who often spoke before he thought. Jesus has come walking on the water. Jesus says, come on. Peter doesn't even think. He just jumps in the water and sinks. But Jesus was there. He was the one that, when Jesus was arrested, who pulled a sword when Jesus refused to go the way of the sword. He was the one that refused to let Jesus wash his feet in the upper room. And then when he realized what Jesus was intending here, he said, wash me all over, not just my feet. One time Peter told Jesus, I'd die for you. I would do anything for you, Lord. I would never, never Never deny you. But in a moment of cowardice and failure, when asked by what scholars say was no more than a junior high school girl, if he was a follower of Jesus, he denied Jesus three times. Three times. Peter was scared for his own life, and he denied Jesus three times, and now he's heartbroken and in tears over his actions. But Jesus pursues him and appears to him. And Jesus has a word of hope for Peter, and I would say it's a hope for everyone who has failed. In this story, we're going to see that Jesus pursues and appears to those who feel defeat and failure. Defeat and failure. This is the biggest failure of Peter's life. What's the biggest failure in your life? What's the biggest failure in your life? What is it that when you think about, you think, I wish I hadn't have done that. And you carry guilt and shame. And a sense of defeat because you did that. This is Peter's biggest failure. Folks, our failures aren't written down, but Peter's is. And we get to learn from his. And he's filled with remorse and guilt and regret. John 21, verse 1 and then 14. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. 
This was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples since he'd been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. Jesus said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Once again, Jesus is the pursuer. Jesus comes to Peter to make Peter's heart right. He comes to Peter to show Peter his grace and his mercy. Jesus makes the first move. I just, I just love the intimacy, again, of this encounter. Jesus knew that even though Peter had denied him three times, he knew because Peter says, you know everything. Jesus knew that Peter loved him, loved him. What he wanted is for Peter to know that too. His failure was not necessarily an indication of his love for Jesus. So just as Peter denied him three times, Jesus wanted to affirm three times that Peter really did love him, give him opportunities to voice his love. And as much as this hurt Peter in this moment, this confession was key to his restoration. Key. Like Peter, Jesus comes to every one of us then. And he would say to every one of us, don't let your failure, don't let your defeat define who you are. Let me restore you. You don't have to carry the residue of your failure with you. Let me, he says, restore you. See, folks, loving Jesus is not a guarantee that you won't fail. But Jesus guarantees you that when you do fail, he is there for you. You can love Jesus and still fail. The question is, what do you do after your failure and your defeat? Do you let that define you? Make that be your reality? Or do you let Jesus restore you and speak the words to you? You are my beloved. You are mine. See, folks, one of the things that stands out to me as we've thought about these four accounts today is that when Jesus appears to his followers, all four accounts, he doesn't chastise them. He doesn't berate them for their lack of faith or their lack of trust or their failure or their defeat or their sadness or their grief. Instead, he comes to them to help them see all is not lost. All is not lost. He comes to inspire hope. And he comes to let them know that everything that they had given their lives for was still true. See, folks, Jesus doesn't publicly humiliate people. He doesn't choose to make everything, every moment a teachable moment. He doesn't give them steps. Okay, here are the steps. You're in sadness, you're in grief. Here are the steps to get out. Oh, my word. Here's how you get out of that. Here's how, you, if you have disappointment and fear, here are the steps to get away from fear. 
You have doubts and skepticism? Oh, here are the steps to get out of doubt and skepticism. You've failed? Oh, here are the steps to get away from failure and defeat. He doesn't offer that. He doesn't offer them principles. Instead, what Jesus does is he offers himself his presence. He offers his presence for every one of us. And I personally am so moved by this because I've been all four of these characters. And I still am. I am someone who knows deep despair and sadness. I'm someone that experiences disappointment and fear. I'm someone that carries doubts and skeptical thoughts. I'm someone who still fails. And Jesus comes to me with empathy, and he gives me himself. Himself. The answer is an encounter with the risen Jesus. The risen Jesus has hope unleashed. That's what it is. And all these people were able to see Jesus personally. So I reflected on that a little bit. They all got to see him right there. They were able to touch that hand. They were able, if they wanted to, to put their hands into his side. But we don't get that. We don't get that. What do we get? Well, I want to read a verse to you, a couple of verses. They're not on your notes. There's no slide for this. John 20, 30 through 31, if you want to write it down. This is what it says. Talking about what John has been writing. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life, life. By the power of his name. By believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. That's what Jesus offers. He offers life. Life here, life now, life forever with him in eternity. Because he has overcome death. We're going to hear a song now. It's called Death Was Arrested. But I want to give you kind of a sneak peek as to how this song came to be. The writer of the song is called Brandon Coker is his name. And Brandon Coper, Coker was on a family vacation in Georgia, and he actually went through this cemetery, this exact cemetery in Georgia. He was walking through the cemetery, and I have no idea why, okay, a morbid guy, okay, through a cemetery. And he saw a tombstone, and the tombstone grabbed him, and this is what the tombstone said. This is the inscription. Here rests what was mortal of Samuel Burr, age 42. In search of health, far from his endeared home, Death arrested his progress on 2nd of April, 1831. Quietly he fell asleep in the Christian hope of immortality and glory forever. Oh, the vanity of man in his best estate. So Brandon left and he went back with his team of writers of songs and he just couldn't get these words out of his head. The words were, death arrested his progress. And as they were reflecting on this, they were reflecting on Easter and on the resurrection, they realized that the inscriber of the tombstone had it wrong. Because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, death was not the winner. Not the winner. In fact, death itself was arrested. 
It's kind of what Paul says when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the King of glory, arrested death. Death no longer has victory over those who are in Christ. But the promise is more than just immortality, more than eternal life. It's a promise of transformation, of change, of life. He offers us the promise that in him we can be set free of grief and fear and doubt and failure. We get to listen to the song. I invite you at any moment that you're moved that you sing along with our team.
wonderful. Because of the resurrection, grief and fear and doubt and failure are not my destiny because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, grief, fear, doubt, and failure are places I pass through as I become more and more of the child of God he's made me to be. He's beloved. As I experience the fact that death was truly arrested, hope was unleashed in my life. It's available for every one of us. Would you bow your heads and let's pray together? God, I thank you so much for Jesus. I just really have uh, been so moved. Every service just gets so much more emotional for me. Just reflecting on... Jesus, the resurrected Jesus is available to every one of us. He pursues us. He comes to us with empathy and with comfort and with compassion in some of the darkest moments of our lives. He wants us to walk with him. He wants us to know joy. He wants us to know security. He wants us to have confidence. He wants us to know victory. God, I pray that you would help us to embrace that, to learn more and more what it's like to walk with the resurrected Christ. And Lord, I pray for anyone in the room that never said yes to Jesus. For some reason, you just resisted again and again. 
but you want to today. Holy Spirit's calling you. That you would just say, Jesus, as much as I understand it, I choose you. I make a choice, just like Thomas did. I choose to believe. Oh, Father, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.